any brand campaign that you do, you know, I think your biggest advocates for your brand are your customers and your employees. You know, they're the people who are closest and can really understand it the most. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Marketing Revisited. My name is Liam Maroney, I am your host, and on this podcast, I talk to the smartest marketers I know, one topic at a time, to learn what's new, what's changed, and what you need to leave behind to be a better marketer. And on this episode, I talk to the incredible Brooke Burge. She is the SVP of Brand Marketing at Attentive, and one of the original team members there. We had a great conversation covering everything from getting started, building a brand, to giant Times Square billboards and how to measure them. It was a great episode. Take a listen. Brooke, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. How are you doing? Thanks, Leo. I'm good. How are you? I am very good. I have been really excited about this conversation. And I think the reason is because, firstly, Attentive is just one of those brands that is one of the darling brands of the B2B tech world. But more than that, you not only own it, you're a founding member. So you have been there through the entire journey of it. So I'm really eager to dive in there. And that's it's actually where I'd love to start on this conversation. So I think it's very easy for people to see brands like Attentive and it looks phenomenal and think, oh, that was created in a lab. That's a big budget brand that doesn't reflect sort of where, where we are. I would love for you to take me a little bit back in time to when you actually started and the earlier days of Attentive. And really, I guess, where that brand existed at the time and how much of it is reflected in what you see today. Yeah, great question, Liam. Uh, And thank you. I I know you saw our brand app campaign that we did recently, which I'm sure we'll chat about. So appreciate you sharing that. Um, So to go back in time. So 2016 was when I joined the team to start Attentive, essentially. I had worked with the co-founders before in our last company, Tap Commerce, where I was the first head of marketing and we were acquired by Twitter um, only like five or so months after I was there. So you know, I, I kind of went in like ready to build a brand. And you know, once you have the, the credibility and the backing of Twitter there, you're like, oh, okay, you know, I, I want to do this from scratch. Um, so during the team then, we weren't even attentive. We were actually working on a totally different product. It was internal communications via text. It was called Franklin. Um, and I no, no, I'm not gonna say anything about that name, but <laughs> uh, so basically we were doing the pitch and people were interested in it, but the question kept coming up of, could I use this for my customers instead? Like, this is an interesting product, but I wanna use it to communicate with my customers, not necessarily my employees. So I remember it was basically like adding a slide to the end of the pitch deck, like typical, like early stage pivot startup mm-hmm. fashion and, you know, working with the, our CEO, Brian, to be like, all right, we got to come up with a name for this thing and we got to make this something and see if people want it. And, um, you know, at the time I was playing around with a bunch of different names. I think you can always go, you could go very literal. You could go what the product does or you could go a little bit more descriptive or like aspirational kind of name. And uh, good old thesaurus.com, spent a lot of time there, landed on the <laughs> and I just loved how that sounded. And I loved that the meaning behind it is really being thoughtful, considerate, observant of how you can communicate, really. And I like that because I like the dual meaning of that's what I wanted to embed in our team, how we treat our customers, but also in how the product comes across to the end consumer for brands that we work with. So that, you know, the marketing should feel attentive, thoughtful and relevant, you know, not interruptive. Um, so really just tried it out. When with that name, the logo, I used to do graphic design myself, like my 
uh, I mean, school newspaper design and like early internships in graphic design. So like I could play around in Illustrator, which I don't, I don't know. Everyone's using Figma now. Love Figma. But um, I threw together a logo for that. And, you know, I went with yellow just off the cuff. I was like, I feel like there's a lot of blue logos out there. Yellow, I remember hearing in color psychology is one of the first colors your eyes sees. And I like that because I was like, oh, texts are one of the first things you notice. So there's the connection there. Um, and then there were little accents on the T and the I, and like cross your T's, dot your I's. So there was some little elements of our brand that were thought of early on um, in terms of future proofing. But the you know V1 brand of Attentive does not look and feel like the present day, for sure. <laughs> I love that story. Firstly, I think you're massively underselling the intentionality you put into that because clearly you did. But it, it's lovely to hear like the thesaurus was brought out because it, it feels like from an outside point of view, you look at the brand and it's one of those brands, particularly the name where you go, oh, it's like one of those names that you wish you'd come up with because it it's so obviously captures the spirit of what the company does. And to hear that it was like through a process of like what represents this <laughs> I word. I feel like I was on the subway going home after work and on thesaurus.com and I was like, oh, I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, as far as when do you think in that process? So like you obviously had some idea and a lot of that essence still resembles it today, color scheme and everything. But at what point did you start to put together documentation where it was a defined brand? There was a tone of voice. There was a guide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really think it was once I started to hire out and build the marketing team a little bit more. Um, because when you have it in your head as a marketer team of one, you know, you're producing every piece of content, you're you're owning every event, you're making every ad. So you kind of have your stamp of approval on it all. And once you hire a team, you need to enable that team to know how to communicate as the brand. So, you know, simple guidance around this, not that. And I think that always helps too. You can write out your brand values, your voice, but having clear examples of this is off and this is why. Um, you want to make sure as you grow the team that you couldn't necessarily, as from an external point of view, look at something and be like, oh, Brooke wrote that, but you know, Megan mm -hmm. wrote that and Tom wrote that. Like you want it to all come across as attentive. Um, so that's something that it was more once you grow out the team to start to put some mechanisms in place that you could at least create some guidance around how to think about the brand. Speaking of that part of it, I know I've gone through this or I've seen this at certainly like the disruptive stage of an early startup where, you know, maybe you the, the tone of voice tends to be more like provocative and you say things that you probably couldn't as you get more enterprise. Did you see the brand the voice evolve or were there points where you said like that's no longer relevant it's time to refresh that or is it very much is it it got documented and it continues to live as it is yeah good question i think that you know i think about it like positioning and voice so positioning is much more like product marketing it's how you're what you're saying about your product that has definitely evolved over time you know for example out the gate we never came out saying like we're sms marketing we do sms because People didn't know that they wanted that then. Um, what was relevant at the time was more mobile messaging. So chatbots on Facebook Messenger, live chat on a website, that was what was kind of the keyword then. So with positioning, you always kind of think of what anchors exist, like what do people already have in their mind that would make sense for them when I'm introducing this product today. Mm. And then voice, I think, can definitely evolve over time. I feel like a lot of our core... Um, our core elements, you know, one of our kind of voice values is witty. 
uh, which I love. Like, I feel like witty is a kind of a clever kind of humor. Um, and I like that that comes through. You know, I'm a big fan of puns. Like, there were always puns in the beginning. <laughs> and there's still puns now, I'm sure. Um, but you don't want to overdo it because you have to kind of also think about your audience, too. And your voice should make sense for your audience. You know, you never want to be talking down. Um, you never mm -hmm. want to be also too juvenile. Like, it depends. You have to kind of think of who your audience is and what would resonate with them. For us, we were targeting and still do target enterprise and also, you know, fast growth, uh, D2C, e-commerce brands primarily. So I look at a lot of their marketing and I'm like, what voice and tone kind of seems to make sense for them? And I'm not going to speak in this very, my rule of thumb is like, read it out loud. If it doesn't sound like a human would say it, don't publish it. Have you come across that? challenge that tends to happen, especially as you either get enterprise or you start to like, quote unquote, grow up where, how do you keep that playfulness there? Like, is there ever any point where people are saying like, well, we need to start sounding more serious or <laughs> SMS is a serious topic. There are laws that apply to these things. How do you keep that, that playfulness in the brand as it's grown? Cause you, you certainly have maintained it. And a lot of brands, they grow up and enterprise themselves in their marketing. Yeah, good question. I mean, the way that I think about that is I think that the voice can vary by channel. Um, so Zendis actually has a really great guide for this that I've looked at for inspiration, which is basically like a mild to wild scale. So how your voice could be more mild and straightforward, depending on the context. You know, for example, if you're sending out an email about something to like a customer comms that's more serious, like maybe mm -hmm. something about the product or something coming up that they should be aware of or a change in uh, you know, legislation that might impact them. Like you're going to take a mild voice there and it's going to be pretty straightforward depending on the context. Um, but then you can still play around. You know, social is another place that it's much more lighter. You know, I think that we have our own text channel, like the texts we send out there are obviously very conversational, very light. So I do think that you you can maintain it, maintain your level of legitimacy as you target enterprises, but just think about the context of where it might make sense to tone that down. You know, you're not going to sign off an email, uh, you know, about something that, maybe could really matter to a customer with like cheers, <laughs> you know, you're not going to, you're not going to say that there. You're going to kind of think about the tone and how it makes sense based on the context. That makes, that's fascinating. Where would you say the brand is at its most wild? Most wild, probably social media. Um, you know, I think that that makes sense for that audience and that makes sense for that channel. That's, that's really interesting. I, so sticking on the brand ownership part, as it's evolved, was there a certain point at which the main the maintenance of the brand, the ownership of the brand became so much of a role in itself that it becomes necessary? Like where's that inflection point where it needs to be contained, monitored, and dedicated owned? Yeah, good question. I mean, I do think it takes time. I think that brand should live with the head of marketing or the CMO for quite some time. Um, it exists in pockets for sure. You know, it exists in events, it exists in comms exists in all these other roles. So it's kind of this amorphous thing. Um, but, you know, for us, it, it grew to a stage where there were things that we wanted to be doing, like, you know, this bad campaign that I know you saw, Liam, or mm -hmm. there were other initiatives that we wanted to launch and consistency that we needed when our team scaled, where it made sense for, for that role to exist. Um, it was something that I had done very early on. Like every time that we onboarded new employees, we have, you know, department overviews. And I would do the ones for marketing and I would have a slide about brand and I would explain that this is not owned by marketing. You know, we own the expressions of the brand. You know, we own the collateral that you see, the website, 
But every single person here, you're an engineer, your product, that's all brand too. Because brand is the idea of a product in someone's mind. And that's every interaction that they have, whether it's the outreach from an SDR, the website, the product itself, if it's smooth and usable, um, you know, how responsive the customer response team is to their needs. So it's not just owned by marketing. Um, I think you have to be the steward of the brand, but you have to make sure that the rest of the company knows that this is something that you pitch in on too. I love the idea that it's the expression of the brand. I'd never heard that before. I, I think it's a really interesting way of putting it. On that note, I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about goal setting when it comes to brand. So obviously you were mentioning this campaign that the Times Square ad was like a phenomenally big, ambitious, bold strategy. Mm-hmm. Walk me backwards from there. At what point did you did you see this as a point in time? Like how, how far out were you from that where you felt like that's the thing we're going to do? And like how ambitious did you go with that? Yeah, good question. So in terms of goal setting, you know, that was really our first external out of home print brand campaign that we had done. I think a lot of our brand visibility prior to then showed up externally in things like events or PR columns. Uh, So we, you know, last year brought in a CMO, uh, Sarah Varney. She's fantastic. So I moved to focus over on brand marketing, which is really kind of, as you can tell, (laughs) one of my favorite spots of marketing. Um, and as you know, the person who kind of built the brand earlier on, I kind of wanted to see how we, I could focus on that next step. And you know, we were excited to to launch this. I think there was kind of feedback that attendance grew so quickly. Um, you know, we're now we're now twelve thirteen hundred employees, and you know, we were I don't know like two hundred in twenty nineteen. So we grew really really quickly, and it was more of that awareness of not just our, our size of our employees, but our customer base that maybe didn't match the market yet, like the reality of, of how our product had grown wasn't really out there yet. So we wanted to do something to really introduce Attentive to the market more broadly. We were going to, this was, we had a couple of different doors we could have went down with this campaign. And, and candidly, we started planning it in like January of this year. And the first placements hit in late March, which was pretty fast. Um, but we had a couple of different doors that we could have went down in terms of the messaging or the focus. But we really wanted to go in very like higher level category creation wise and focus on your text text marketing and conversational marketing as a category and then introduce attentive. So it wasn't so, so heavy about, you know, our customers and us. I think that's kind of a round two campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you think about so that's the goal of the campaign. And then what are the mediums for that? What are the markets that mattered? We looked at data of our customers and our prospects to see what markets they were centralized in. Um, so New York and LA showed up as you know two of those top markets. That's why we focused there. And then in terms of the outlets that we selected for out of home, yes, the the Times Square ad. Like I wanted something that would be memorable and honestly, like could extend to dig- digital and social. Because I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I know you you were you know near New York as well, Liam. Um, Candidly, I don't remember last time I went to Times Square on my own. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I know that it's like an iconic New York City moment. And that once you have that photo, like that's what employees would want to share. Like that's what would get out there more. Um, so it was kind of thinking about not just like the placement itself, but how could that extend to digital to social? 
I, I want to stick on this. I have, I have a two-part question on this because I'm so fascinated by this campaign to the point that I was posting about it as well. So not only did you do the out of home in Times Square, but there was the print advertisement, which from anyone who's in B2B tech marketing, you picked the two most challenging mediums to try and actually measure and see the impact <laughs> of. But ironically, also, I saw both of those on social media. So I was neither in mm-hmm. Times Square, nor did I have the print version of the actual ads. And yet I saw both of them. So that was an intentional play on your part. You assume that the print ads would find their way onto social. Yeah. I mean, I think that you think about the distribution of it. And you know, like, for example, Wall Street Journal print publication that we were in. Um, I don't personally get print Wall Street Journal. I had to like seek that out in store to get it just for that purpose. But I knew that if we you know, took a picture and encouraged our employees to do it, that would share. Um, and it was also making sure that you're, I think, one of the reasons you probably saw it externally is any brand campaign that you do, you know, I think your biggest advocates for your brand are your customers and your employees. Um, you know, they're the people who are closest and can really understand it the most. So we spent a lot of time thinking about internal comms around the campaign, um, you know, encouraging our employees to do a scavenger hunt and go find the ads in, in real life and post them. Um, so there was a lot of kind of thought around that and making sure that the employees felt like part of the campaign, like even so that I actually have it here. We've made little mementos um, of the ad themselves and offered them to employees to kind of, you know, be a part of it has has glitter confetti. And it's I love that. I love that. (laughs) Um, You know, 200 employees uh, signed up to get one of those and marketing is not 200 people. So it made, you know, kind of that impact of making sure the whole company is participating in the brand marketing that you're doing. That's incredible. The internal comms bit is really interesting to me. I I would love to get a little peek behind the curtain on that if you could, which like a Times Square ad is no small thing to ask for budget for, nor is a Wall Street Journal ad. How, I mean, I guess what internal selling needed to take place to justify that, define what success would look like on that? Or was it just a matter of you already had buy-in from leadership on this kind of marketing? Good question. I would say that we already did have buy-in from leadership on this type of marketing. Um, you know, I think that it was also with kind of uh, the, the state that we were, like how fast we had grown, you know, when, whether you're recruiting or, or doing, you know, reaching out to customers and they're like, oh, that's awesome. You guys have so many great customers. We haven't heard of you yet. And we wanted to make sure that at least that awareness that I've heard of you is there. Um, so we did have leadership buy in already to participate to do this. That said, it wasn't like, let's just do this and hope for the best. You know, we thought about ways that we would measure that. So we did brand lift surveys before and now we're running that after. The campaign technically like concluded at the end of May. So we waited till mid-June to do another brand lift survey. And this is something that you can just do through Polefish um, on your own, really. And we did that for we did that for the markets that we were advertising in New York and LA. Uh, to, to gauge unaided awareness of attentive and also if they were aware of attentive, like what did they associate us with? And those we did in the markets we were advertising in and also in two control markets. So we're repeating that now to you know hopefully see a lift there. We also looked at organic site traffic um, and we did include QR codes on the ad, which we can measure scans and engagement. And those QR codes move somebody into an experience for um, a text sign up so that they could have a text exchange with us. So we also measured signups for that interaction as well. So we kind of thought about all those different things that you could look at to measure and being able to also measure things like social impressions, paid ad impressions, and consider that part of the mix as well. 
The brand lift one is really interesting. And it's, you know, if, if I was to try and like channel my internal like B2B pessimist, I would say like, oh, well, isn't, do you have a sample size big enough? Like if you're selling to enterprise, like how many people could you be asking? Who are the right people? Like, so it obviously worked in your case, but I mean, in your experience, is that a valuable metric to look at for brand? Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's something that you have to, you know, you have to find some benchmark or something that you can center around. And for us, you know, like you said, we would ask questions to create the criteria. So it was, you know, does your job interface with customers in some capacity or do you work in retail or e-commerce industries? So you kind of have the qualifying criteria to get closer to that B2B buyer. Uh, But ultimately we were, I felt like we had a good awareness among our target audience. And it was a little bit more of like that halo around it, like people who, you know, would have some kind of buying influence or recommendation in the process of considering attentive and we wanted to reach them too. So for example, like CMOs, marketers may know who we are, but does the CTO, does the CIO, does the CFO who has to improve the budget? So thinking about, you know, it does need to be a little bit broader than your target audience. Uh, but brand lift is a good way to get a metric that at least, you know, twice a year, you know, every six months, you can do that and look back and see how it's improving in addition to organic site traffic. This is a really in the weeds question, but I'm very curious about it, particularly with buyers. So the like the Times Square ad, the Wall Street Journal ad, what impression were you trying to leave with it? Good question. So with the ad itself and um, the ad, you know, basically I'm looking at a copy of it right now. It's like surrounding me in my office. Um, <laughs> you can't have a conversation with this ad. That's the print ad. Um and, you know, I believe the Times Square one said something similar. It says, but with text message marketing, you can. The phone's only two inches wide, five inches tall, but for modern marketers, it's huge. So there was something about this irony of we were using traditional marketing channels like print, like out of home to advertise for a modern interactive marketing channel. So it was almost tongue in cheek of like pointing out like, hey, there's some inherent challenges with existing marketing channels, which is why you should consider text. So the impression that I wanted to leave was, you know, that was clever. Uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't think about it like that. Or like, look at them realizing that they, <laughs> they're they doing print ads and out-of-home ads for text message marketing. Um, so almost that, like, again, going back to the wittiness of the brand voice or that value, making that come through. And then in terms of the visual design of the ads, like I, at the Times Square ad, it was just very much our brand color, that yellow. And all the print ads were yellow, too, with a simple white text bubble and copy in it. You didn't want to get too complex with that, but I wanted to start to make that association of that color as well. Um, and it's funny, we one data point, I guess, that we looked at as a little more qualitative was gong calls. Um, so recordings, you can actually get in there and search like Times Square or search, you know, Wall Street Journal and see if prospects or customers are talking about it. And there was one prospect who the call was... Um, he had he had taken a call with us, but the day before he happened to be in a cab with his business partner driving through Times Square. And it's like, oh, I recognize that yellow. And I knew, oh, that's the company I'm talking to tomorrow. Um, and that was just such a funny, like kind of anecdotal example. Um, and I guess, you know, people do go to, through Times Square. So <laughs> yeah, too. Um, but yeah, we ultimately wanted to start to create those brand associations and that wittiness of the the advertising while getting them to want to consider it because we had stats in there about how our customers see $55 for every dollar spent. So showing that there's real revenue potential here. 
I love that story. That's fantastic. That, uh, that, that is far beyond even what I was expecting as the answer. I love that. <laughs> I love I love gong. Sometimes, you know, as a marketer, you, you're not on all those gong calls and you're not listening to everything. So it's helpful to to dig in a bit there. That's great. I would love to turn it back just to your role and really talk about what exactly does it mean to own brand at a B2B tech company? What falls within your purview? Yeah, great question. So within my peer review, I oversee content marketing and brand strategy, which is one person who's fantastic. And her and I work together on a lot of these campaigns you see, and also brand design. Um, so the team that really works with all of marketing and other parts of the company to create the, the illustrations and the designs that you see externally. So those are the functions. Events also can fit under brand marketing sometimes. It kind of straddles the line between brand and demand. I think a lot of things do, uh, comms as well. So in terms of who our close partners are, it's definitely events. Content is within the brand team and comms and demand generation as well. Because you know, we're doing things like if we're doing an ad campaign, we want to think what ways could we get in front of an ABM audience, like our target audience, you know, knowing which markets our customers were in, we want to kind of have that overlap as well. Um, so that's really who our closest and legal, of course, is a very close partner. Learn a lot about IP, intellectual <laughs> property from them. And yeah, so that, that's really the areas that we own. But in terms of how I think about prioritizing the work, um, I structure it by campaigns, collaborations, and ops. So campaigns would be Things that brand team owns independently. So we're taking the lead on it. We're running it. Um, so, you know, whether that is a video that we're producing or an ad campaign or it's like a, a social campaign that we, you know, are working with comms on, that's our initiative. Like we just launched Attentive Goods, our merch store, and that was a brand led campaign. And then collaborations is where we work with other teams. So whether that's comms or if events has, um, you know, oftentimes we'll work with them on guidance on experiential activations at events, um, working with them and other teams on elevating the brand. And then ops is things that we need to just get in place so that we can create scale. So whether that's like a training, like I really want to do a brand voice training. Um, we've already done a mini version of that with our recruiting team. Um, so those are kind of operational mechanisms, whether it's like tracking the different sub brands that we have within the company. Because, you know, there's attentive, but then there's also like the name of our newsletter and the name of this event and all these things that start to exist that you have to organize um, or creating process for creating new subbrands. So campaigns, collaboration and ops is how I'd think about it. On the subbrands really quickly, because you mentioned product marketing earlier. So like I know there was like attentive concierge that just came out. How, what's the partnership between product marketing and, and brand look like, particularly when it comes to naming and things like that? Great question. So it's a very close partnership with naming. Um, I think that brand is most involved when it is something that is a, a core product name or something that will be highly visible versus a feature name. Um, so for example, with Concierge, um, you know, we were involved there. And anytime that we launch a, a new a new product feature, oftentimes the product marketing will give, hey, here's things that we're thinking about. And then we'll review that from a sense of, <laughs> you know, that's hard to say. I think I've seen that somewhere else. Like this domain's already taken. Like you're kind of looking at it a little bit more of like, how would that work in reality? Because um, mm. you, know, you can have a great name, but it might not make sense for that context. And then I help with the connection to the legal team if we want to, you know, file for a trademark for a product name. You know, uh, for example, it's into concierge or two-way journeys that we have trademark pending on. You know, I'll be the connector to the, the legal team for that. 
So it's really a good collaboration because I think that product marketers are closest to understanding the core functionality of what that product does. And then we can help translate it into what's a name that could resonate and make sense more broadly and fits in with the overall umbrella of attentive names. <laughs> um, because you don't, you don't want it to be something that's like so out there that it doesn't make sense for us to call a product that. Sure. sure. That's a fantastic answer. That's really interesting. I'm curious about time windows. So when it comes to planning brand out, Brand tends to be the longest time window or certainly the longest amount of time that can occur from ideation to inception. And you're, it's sort of an evolving thing, whereas sales lives this quarter, demand generation is building demand over coming quarters. When you're planning brand, are you thinking of, do you have like a this quarter, this year, next year, five year? How far into the future are you thinking and how immediate is your planning? Yeah, we tend to th plan in orders for what we're accomplishing so that there's more of a structure of this is what has to get done when. So we will have quarterly plans across campaigns, collaborations, and ops. And then we plan a little bit more in the first half of the year, second half of the year. What are the big milestones? What are the big things that we want to accomplish? And then look back annually and measure any kind of brand lift or any impact that we had had. But you're correct in that it takes much longer for brand campaigns to play off. Um, so the way I like to think about it is that brand marketing is basically like audience acquisition and then demand generation or growth marketing is more like customer acquisition. You need one. You can't have one without the other. The balance can definitely tip at times depending on the stage of the company or the needs of the company, but they have to offset each other. Uh, so this is a cheesy example. But my sister is a pecan farmer in New Mexico. And I heard this analogy once and I thought about it. Basically, like brand marketing is like farming, like planting the seed. It takes time for stuff to grow. And then demand gen is kind of the harvest where you're like, oh, look at that. Look at all these leads. Look at everything we got. Like People know who we are and I got this business. But you can't have one without the other. And it takes time for the brand piece to grow. Um, and there's definitely, we've been doing it intentionally since we started the company. Like ever since we started the company, there were things that we had done, like sending customers welcome gifts that we still do today. And, you know, that's something that pays off over time. You're not immediately going to see that brand affinity or the customer retention or loyalty, but you will in a year or two. So. I'd love to, and there may not be a good answer for this, but one of the biggest challenges I certainly find in B2B tech is that. The, the metrics tend to lead a lot of the behaviors and certainly in demand gen. I mean, like even demand gen has gone through a, like, it's not about leads. It's about actual revenue and pull yourself back from it and look a bit broader view when it comes to brand. A lot of the things that the metrics, like the tangible brand lift things, like you said, they take a long time to happen. So when you're thinking quarter to quarter, are you, are your quarterly measurables more about, activity or are they outcomes or like how do you balance the two of those mm -hmm. they for quarter to quarter it is definitely a balance of activity and outcome you know for every activity so for example launching the attentive goods brand merch store you know we don't launch it and move on we look at metrics around you know how much uh customer how much traffic did we get on the website there or how many new tech signups did we get or you know how many more uh traffic did we drive that we weren't expecting? So we kind of look at things for each activity. But in terms of the outcome, that takes that takes longer and can happen over time. 
Um, but I must say, like, I think that brand marketing doesn't always need to be super expensive. Uh, like we can be, we can do a lot with a little bit of budget. I'm used to that. I've done that since I was a scrappy marketer, number one at Attentive. And there's things like we have a campaign launching later in June or sorry, early July. And that didn't cost any dollars externally. And I think that it's going to get a lot of visibility, hopefully, and be something that gets shared around. So you can do a lot with a little. So you can be thoughtful about how you spend the dollars that you have. I would save them for high impact things like the ad campaign that we talked about. And then think about how you can elevate the brand kind of strategically in other ways. I think most marketing leaders think about their budget as some kind of split of knowing this amount I expect to be able to easily measure return on and am held accountable to how many MQLs I bring and how much pipeline generation I contribute. And then this amount, I know that I'm not going to be able to easily measure a return on this. And I think that events is also an area that fits into this because oftentimes the leads or the, the people that you meet at an event, they're not going to close the next week or two. Like they might, but they might take a couple more touch points. And B2B takes you know, seven to 10 touch points before someone converts, especially for enterprise. So, you know, I think it's it's part of that partnership between marketing and finance and your other teams to have that understanding of this is how we should think about and measure brand activity. I love that. That's such a good framework. On the difficult to measure parts, the last thing I want to ask you about is purpose-driven brands. You wrote a fantastic LinkedIn blog post on this, which is well worth reading. And often I think, you know, like purpose-driven brands, everyone kind of intuitively gets it at a B to C level. Mm -hmm. But at a B2B level, there's this long-running myth that buyers are unemotional, they make purchases based on what they need, and they're not impacted by any feelings or emotions or any of that stuff, which is clearly nonsense. <laughs> but in your experience, how important is that in the enterprise tech decision-making process? Yeah. Well, I think in terms of brand purpose, I think of that as really why does the company exist and what do they value? So when it comes to B2B, I think it's easy to think of your company mission or purpose as your product, but that's not why you exist. Like, what does your product do? Who does it help? Like, that's why you exist. So for us, um, you know, we work with 5,000 plus brands to help them communicate with their audiences. And how we do that is through a mobile text messaging platform. But that's not our mission. Our mission is to help those companies drive more revenue and for them to grow and to be more successful. So in a lot of B2B cases, your mission is not necessarily like you. <laughs> it's more like how you're helping your customers. That's your mission. It's, and that's why there needs to be a level of empathy with all kinds of marketing, but especially in tech marketing. I think that that is a undervalued uh, kind of characteristic of marketing is to have that empathy at its core of what am I communicating to my audience and why does it matter to them? You know, not just like they're trying to grow their businesses. Like I have empathy for that or that individual is trying to get promoted. Like how can using this product and how can I guide them towards that so that this is something that they can have on their resume and that can bolster them. So I think of it like that, like making sure that the purpose comes across in who your end audience is. It's it's B2B enterprise. If, it, if your purpose is too, too much about you, it's not authentic and that's not really what you are. Like ultimately you, you tend to be a service provider. You're providing a service to another company. Think about why. <laughs> so that's more how I'd consider it. I love that answer. That That's a wonderful way of putting it. So the last thing I want to ask you is 
about what gets you excited about brand, particularly in this space, right? And to your credit, you are certainly one of the trailblazers at the leading edge of pushing brand in the B2B yes. world. But what what gets you excited about what's happening, what's coming? What what are you looking at that is your shiny object? Yeah, I think something that gets me excited is, um, and where we can learn a lot from B2C marketing is partnerships. I think that B2C does an awesome job with brand collaborations. And I haven't really seen that come to life, you know, too, too strongly in, in B2B. I think it, it's partner marketing, which is a little bit more co-marketing demand gen focus. Well, like how could mm. two B2B brands come together and make some kind of really clever campaign? Um, we're starting to do little baby steps of this by collaborating with their own customers on, you know, co-branded merch and like making campaigns around that. But I love whenever I see a really clever uh, B2C brand collaboration, like that always gets my eye. So I often in B2B will look to consumer marketing for inspiration. So that's something that's got me excited. I think the other thing that has me excited is just more, more how can we have more closeness to our customer? In B2B marketing, as we talked about earlier, you know, it's often sales or client strategy who's there having those day-to-day conversations. So how are you going to make a message that resonates if you don't really know your end customer? And I think that's something I'm excited about is how marketing can be closer to that conversation, um, how we can really have a seat at the table to get to know customers on a personal basis so that that can inform our brand campaigns. For example, when we relaunched our website last year, I had a couple of customers who, um, you know, I know personally and I reached out to them. I was like, showed them the site. I was like, you know, (laughs) critique this, like, tell me what's wrong with this. What doesn't make sense? And they gave really great feedback. And I wouldn't have known that if I didn't have those conversations and that closeness there. So that's something I'm excited about is like, how can we not just live in like a, a bubble by ourselves, like coming up with campaigns that we think are cool, but how can we validate that with our end audience more? That is amazing. And for those not aware, the end result of that website is that it was an award-winning website. So clearly the customer feedback contributed. It definitely helped. It helped. I mean, even things like the graphics, they were like, show a customer responding to that text. Like I, as a founder, care that my customers can talk to me and I have two-way interaction. Just things that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of so closely. Oh, that's amazing. That is a wonderful place to leave it. I... This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining. I I am such a big fan of what Attentive is doing. And it's so, so much fun to hear some of the thought process that goes behind it. Thank you for having me. This was fun. 